Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is going on? What is the latest and greatest? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's well. Get ready to board onto this sports rocket ship because there is a lot to go through this sports universe and you've come to the right place to listen to it all here on the latest edition of the J Reels podcast. I am your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 155 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, September the 14th in the year of our Lord 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expect here on this podcast is as follows. We're down to the final two weeks of the baseball season. The sprint is about to get into the home stretch as we're just two weeks away from the postseason. I'll get into everything that's happening, whether it's the AL Central, the Twins and White Sox, who would have thought for AL Central supremacy. Also, the Mets, with them being two games behind, but their chances are slim and none, and I'll be able to get into all that later on in the podcast. Week one is almost in the books in the NFL. We have two games tonight, including my beloved Steelers. But I'll dissect all the winners and losers of yesterday, even a little bit on Thursday night. But the NFL is now in full effect as we usher in another new season and a new sport into the fold. The postseason in the NHL are just a game away from the Stanley Cup Finals as the Dallas Stars and Tampa Bay Lightning are ready to close out their series and move on to the Stanley Cup Finals. I'll recap what has been a lackluster postseason for the NHL as well as the Islanders. They'll look at this one game in this series that will haunt them all offseason, which may only be a few months. But I'll get into that later on. The U.S. Open Tennis, which concluded yesterday. An epic, historic match with Dominic Team. I'll get into that. My hero in zero of the week. But we're going to lead into this podcast discussing the NBA and their postseason. Because as of right now, this round has been saved by two Game 7s. The first one being on... Friday night between the Celtics and Raptors, which had a 15-round heavyweight knockout dragdown series. And when you think about it, that series actually should have been probably five games, as we know the Celtics blew that game three at the very end. But we'll put that series aside for now, because to me, the story this morning, if you're an NBA fan or even the 400 Clipper fans that are out there, is what the hell has gone on with your team? The Clippers, who look like they're on a fast track, up three games to one, maybe even looking ahead a little bit to that matchup that everybody had anticipated. The Lakers and the Clippers in a Western Conference final. Just too bad that it's not going to take place in LA, in the Staples Center. It's going to be in the bubble. But wait, Denver said, not so fast. When you look at the last two games between the Nuggets and Clippers, all you have to do is just wonder what happened with the defensive effort by the Clippers, they've just fallen apart. They've collapsed in big stretches, not able to get offense when they needed behind Kawhi Leonard and Paul George leading the attack there for the Clippers. And you got to wonder whether or not is Doc Rivers feeling the pressure there 
knowing that his team is 48 minutes away from being ousted in the second round in which the organization on a whole has never seen a conference final. The Nuggets, I'm sure after losing game four, they probably looked in the mirror and maybe looked across the court to say, we got the Clippers right where we want them. And the reason why I say that is because, remember, they were down 3-1 to Utah in the previous round, and granted that they had to hold their collective breaths when Mike Conley took that three, which would have been a series-clinching three-pointer, go halfway down and then come right out. And even though this is the unconventional way and they're doing it the hard way, but the Nuggets have clawed all the way back to now the series is tied at three, game seven tomorrow night. And again, you got to wonder... What is going on in that Clipper locker room? You got to wonder what's going through the mind of Doc Rivers. I'm sure he's going to be poised. I'm sure he's going to be collected. He's been down this road before. We know he has a championship pedigree in Boston. Albeit the one title. But he's been to multiple NBA finals. He knows how to manage his stars. And now it's just a matter of getting that defensive effort to close out this series and move on to heights where they've never seen before. Now, as we go back and look at those two games in particular, when you look at game five and you see that they were up by 15 at the half and they were, as a matter of fact, they were up by 15 in the second half. I got that mixed up with game six. My apologies. So they're ready to close out the Nuggets. But of all people, not Nikola Jokic, not Jamal Murray. It was an old NBA veteran, Paul Millsap, who had a huge game. And I know they got a big three late by Michael Porter Jr., which led them to come back and win game five. So you're thinking, all right, well, the Nuggets got the one game. Let's see what happens in a game six. And then now they're down 15 at halftime and at one point down 19. And you would have thought at that point, there's no way that the Nuggets are going to come back. You'd figure that the Clippers would have learned from the game before being up double digits. And we understand a 15-point lead sometimes in the NBA might as well be a five-point lead. Because teams could go on those runs, get stops. The other team could go ice cold as far as from the field. And we understand that sometimes a 15-point lead may not be as insurmountable as it once was back in the day. It is a different game now. Understood. But still, 15 points is still a sizable lead where you figure a team like the Clippers will be able to close out and go home with a victory. And in this case, a series victory to prepare themselves for a conference final. But what you had here yesterday afternoon where the Clippers just folded like a cheap tent. They were unable to get anything going on the defensive end. When you have a turnaround that the Nuggets did when they were, again, down 15 to then win the game by 11 points to have a 27-point swing, there's something going on there. There's just a lack of concentration, a lack of focus. Now, I wasn't watching these games, of course, with all the NFL games that were going on, back and forth, not really focusing in on this game. But when I saw it unfold and just let go by the Clippers, it made you think that, does this team have a championship medal? And they've blown a lot of leads, even during the way this bubble had started. I mean, look at the Mavericks series. You know, they lost a couple of games where they had big leads. And I believe a few games in the bubble prior to the start of the postseason They weren't clicking on all cylinders. So you wonder what is going on there, whether it's just, you would think it's coaching. Because what is Doc Rivers doing when his team has these double-digit leads and for whatever reason, they can't close them out? 
And it's a Clipper team that is expected to go to a final. I'm sure a lot of people picked them to win a final. So to see this happen in back-to-back games, you really have to question whether or not that they have the testicular fortitude to win these games. And we talk about the heart and so on and so forth. I think they need to take or drink some of the water that the Toronto Raptors were taking. Mind you that they lost the series, but as much as they were able to hang on and win and have their own championship DNA, well, the Clippers need to get that in their locker room at some point over the course of the next 48 hours. And if you're Doc Rivers, this is a monumental game for your career. And I understand people are going to look at it and say, oh, geez, Jay Reels, don't get, don't get carried away. I mean, it's just a conference semifinal. Again, look at this franchise. The Clippers have actually done nothing to the point where they haven't even reached the conference final, as I said just a couple of minutes ago. And even with the teams that they had just a few years ago, the Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan teams, they didn't even make it to a conference final. Remember, they spit the bit against Houston when they had a 3-2 lead and even a double-digit lead in their building to lose a game six. So many times that they've had very good teams, successful regular season teams, and even won a round in the postseason, but were never able to get to that conference final. And now this team was tailor-made to make that deep run, to finally get to an NBA final, and dare I say, even win an NBA final in a town where the Lakers reign supreme. And here they are. They have to be shivering, sweating, maybe for the younger players on the team who have never been there. But this is going to be a game where Kawhi Leonard is going to have to carry this team on his shoulders. Similar to last year in a Game 7 against the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, Toronto doesn't have anything close to the franchise misery that the Clippers have had. But it just goes to show you that the Raptors actually have one more title than the Clippers do. And the Raptors have only been in the league, what, 25 years? And the Clippers have been a doormat in the NBA forever until this last decade. So this game tomorrow night, obviously all the pressure is on the Clippers. And Kawhi is going to have to carry the mail to deliver this team home. And Paul George also has to contribute too. Now Paul George is the guy, as we all know, brought in here to be that Robin to Kawhi Leonard's Batman. This is going to be more on him as well to see how he can produce in this game. Because he was brought here to deliver this championship with Kawhi. And we all know it's a team effort. I get that. We can't just put all the responsibility on Paul George. But this is also a game where... People are going to look at him in the future if he comes up small, is so-so, whatever. He needs to have a monster game as well. And not only just on the offensive end, but on the defensive end, because this is where the series is falling completely apart for the Clippers is on the defensive end. And we know George is that type of guy with his length and his athleticism that he should be able to stop the Jamal Murrays of the world or even try to slow down. Not that he's going to guard Jokic because Jokic is obviously a bigger player, but he's going to have to do whatever it takes to get this team on to the next round. So to me, I look at Doc Rivers and Paul George as being one and two here. And Kawhi, not that he's going to get a pass, because if he shoots four for 17 for 13 points and doesn't come up big here, where George has a big game and obviously he's going to get some of that blame. But at the same time, you're looking at a guy who's already won two titles. He's won an MVP in Toronto He will forever be a hero up there. So this won't be a mark on his career unless he implodes in a big spot. 
And even then, they're still going to look back and say, well, he does have two titles with two different teams. Whereas Paul George, he's a guy that we've never seen perform on a big stage in a huge spot to deliver his team to either a victory or, in this case, to the next round, which will be historic for this franchise, considering it's been, what, 50-some-odd years, whether you're the Buffalo Braves, the San Diego Clippers, and now the Los Angeles Clippers, the, the time has come. So that's going to be a very fascinating storyline tomorrow night to watch that Game 7 to see how it unfolds. And if you're the Nuggets, because we got to go to the other side there, because we understand it's all the Clippers, the Nuggets are playing with house money. Because if they run out of the gas in this game, and if they get run out of the building, they're going to say, hey, it was a great run, they just fell one game short. All right, if they happen to get blown out, like they did in game one, then you could have to look at it and say, hey, they gave it all they had, they just ran out of gas. But the Nuggets, you think they're going to compete, they've come this far, not only that, but in the first round with the way they played against Utah, but also now here with the Clippers, they know that they could do something. I don't even think there's been a team in NBA history that has come back from 3-1 deficits in the first two rounds of a series. So this would, I would think, would be historic as well. And they could set themselves up nicely to go to a conference final. But I would think, even if it's the Clippers or the Nuggets, they may end up being sacrificial lambs to the Lakers. Because they've been dominant, they've been well-rested, and we understand there may be some rust there, and the Lakers have lost both game ones in each of their first two series, but they have shown that they are by far the best team in the West right now through these first two rounds in the playoffs. But first things first, tomorrow night, if I'm a betting man, and it's tough as it to say, I had Denver going to a final. There's a part of me that wants to root for them. But I think the Clippers, at the end of the day, I'd have to trust Doc Rivers and Kawhi Leonard to somehow, some way, drag this team through the fire and move on to a conference final. And if they don't, man, there is going to be some hell to pay to the Clippers because this is this would be an inexcusable loss for the franchise. And it would almost be typical, considering how pathetic they've been for a franchise for pretty much all their existence. So we'll be able to find out tomorrow night Which team will move on to play the Lakers? And I think it's going to be tooth and nail. But at the end of the day, I think the Clippers will be able to finally move on. And if they don't, oof, man, that is going to be a long offseason for the Clippers. And we'll keep it out west for a second. What can you say about the series with the Rockets? They lose the first game, and then they turned on the switch and were able to sweep Houston out of the postseason. I know Russell Westbrook had a couple of good games, but he was not effective. I don't know if the quad was a bother, but you can't really use that as an excuse. James Harden had a terrible game for, what was he, 2 for 11. He did shoot 16 for 20 from the free throw line, but you know that's typical James Harden in a nutshell. And what else can you say if you're the Lakers? Right now, they are looking as dominant as they have been to the point where now Mike D'Antoni, and I'll get to him in a second, he's... Not going to come back as coach of the Rockets, but as far as the Lakers are concerned, they are going to be a tough out here and look like they're going to be primed to not only do their best to zoom through a conference final, but get to the NBA final and win that 17th title, which will equal the Boston Celtics all-time in NBA history. But obviously a lot of work for them that lies ahead. As far as the Rockets are concerned, I know that James Harden wanted D'Antoni to come back. He says he's done an unbelievable job. But D'Antoni, for the regular season, we all know their offensive prowess and what James Harden can do in these games from October through mid-April. 
But really what it all counts, not this year withstanding due to COVID, but when it comes from April to June, they cannot seal the deal and get to the NBA Finals or even win a championship. And right now, if you're the Rockets, you're going to have to find a new coach. I don't know who that coach is. I don't know if they're going to go more defensive-minded. Will they keep an offensive-minded coach? Who knows? But D'Antoni just was not the right fit there. I don't know if he's going to resurface somewhere else. Quite possible. Maybe in a another market, a team that may be just that much closer to taking it to the next level that may get into a postseason and win a round, but they're not going to get to a title because of the style of play that he employs. And D'Antoni, who came into the season as a lame duck, had some contract squabbles there with the owner, Tillman Fertitta, but he just felt as if it was time to go. And I'm sure James Harden, who wanted him to stay, who knows what that's going to be from a psychological standpoint for James Harden moving forward. Russell Westbrook, we all know, he has a few years left on his contract, so he's not going to go anywhere. And the Rockets, who have been close a couple times during this stretch, especially when they lost to those two series to Golden State, now have to regroup, pick themselves up from their bootstraps, and see what coach could come in there to take them to that next level because D'Antoni will not come back next year. And speaking of coaching, real quick, Billy Donovan stepped aside in OKC, Mutual parting of the ways between ownership and the former coach. And pretty much what he had said was he knows that Oklahoma City is going to go in a different direction. It's quite possible with two years left on his contract and I believe close to $85 million, you would think that the Thunder will unload Chris Paul to a contending team, bring back more assets. We know about all the surplus of draft picks that they received, not only from the Paul George trade but obviously the Westbrook trade where they have number one picks from here till the end of eternity but they have a surplus of number one picks this is a team that is definitely made for the future they do have a couple of pieces in place but they know that if they're going to make a run at this they're going to have to wait a few more years to build up all that draft capital hopefully choose the right players and then sometime in the mid-2020s to the late-2020s they can make an impact in this league as one of the top teams in the NBA So with that change coming, or you would think forthcoming, Billy Donovan steps aside and we'll see what coach goes in there. And I know a lot of the talk is going to be about which coach is going to be not only just tailor-made for whether the Thunder or the Rockets, but from the African-American standpoint, because a lot of the coaching positions, in particular Brooklyn, have gone to their white counterparts, a la Steve Nash. And people are thinking throughout the league there's a buzz where why aren't the African-American coach getting the opportunity like they once did? And I know that could be some controversy, and controversy, understandably so. I know with Brooklyn, people riffed about that, about how they're going to give Steve Nash a job when you have guys like Mark Jackson or even Nate McMillan who got released from Indiana. Sam Cassell is a guy on Doc Rivers' staff in L.A. But as we all know, that coaching hire was endorsed by one Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So as much as you could say, why couldn't one of the aforementioned guys get that job? Well, all you got to do is just look to the two players on the Nets and ask them about it. So we'll see where the Thunder and Rockets will go down the road as far as coaches are concerned. And as we get back to the bubble, the Miami Heat disposed of the Milwaukee Bucks in five, to no surprise. And Chris Middleton didn't show up in that game five, which was expected after his heroics in game four. And a lot of the talk this offseason is going to be about Giannis. Is he going to sign the Supermax deal, which he can do? The Bucks can offer him that 
what is it, five-year, $250 million contract. Is he going to take it? Is he not? That's going to be the rage all offseason and into next year. Based on the things that I've read, and this is prior to them losing in this round against the Heat, but even going back last year, he's not a player that fraternizes with other players. He doesn't work out with other players. He's a guy that's pretty much to his own, works out on his own, has respect for the other players, but he's not cutting that cloth where a lot of these guys will train in LA or in Miami, play pickup games, meet up. Uh Uh-uh, he's not going to do that. And he prefers it that way only because he wants to keep that competitive edge. He wants to get better. I guess whatever tricks or secrets he doesn't want to expose by playing with other players during these pickup games or workouts. So just based on that, you would think he would come back and stay with Milwaukee. Please, five years, $250 million. I'm sure he could go to ownership and say, all right, what direction can we go as far as getting certain pieces in here that we could take this team to the next level and finally get to an NBA title? Because as I said last week, the team has gone backwards from two years ago. And now they have to put together a team and we understand that they're bound by some contracts. Chris Middleton signed a long-term deal. We know about Eric Bledsoe. Maybe you can unload Bledsoe because his annual salary isn't as high as a guy like Chris Middleton, but that's for the offseason. The bottom line is that the Bucks have to do whatever it takes to keep Giannis there. And based on some of the things that I've read over the last year plus, he looks like a guy that will probably stay in Milwaukee. Obviously, I don't know for sure, but I would hope that he does stay there and doesn't want to become part of a super team with another group out there and, of course, upset the balance in the NBA as it seems it's been like that over the last 10 years. So we'll see what happens there. But give credit to the Miami Heat and what they've done. And now they've had almost a week's rest as game one of the Eastern Conference Final will take place tomorrow between Boston and Miami. And the Celtics had a tough road there. Talked a little bit before about them closing the series out early if they would have won that game three. We understand that that wasn't the case. Celtics came out in game five and blitzed. The Raptors to the tune of only 11 points in the first quarter and 32 points in the first half as they cruised to a 13-point victory. And then game six was just a back-and-forth, old-school NBA-type game. Clutch shots, good defense. But Toronto and Kyle Lowry would not let that team die as they pulled out the game six victory. And then game seven was somewhat similar. Although the Celtics were in command there in that fourth quarter, they had... An 11-point lead with about six minutes to go, 88-77. And then the Raptors went on their run to the tune where I thought the Raptors were going to get the equalizer there at 89-87. But great defense down the stretch. Marcus Smart with a LeBron-esque block from behind, which was unbelievable. And then Grant Williams, who came in for defense on Fred Van Vliet as he tried to get the three there at 90-87. And the Celtics were able to slither out of a Game 7 and into the Conference Final, 92-87. As hard fought, as tough of a series as you could possibly find. And the Celtics make it back to the Eastern Conference Finals for the second time in three years. That was a huge game for Brad Stevens to win also. His biggest game in his career, if you ask me. And I understand maybe the Celtic fan or NBA fans will say, well, what about the Game 7 he had in the Eastern Conference Final against the Cavaliers where they had a five-point lead with about five minutes to go, but they ended up losing. To me, that was a series that, yes, they probably should have won, but they definitely could have won. But with no Kyrie Irving, 
No Gordon Hayward. And that's not an excuse, people. But when you had that team roll the way they did, Terry Rozier had a terrible Game 7. I know Tatum was the hero there for a moment with the dunk on LeBron, etc. But as big as the game that was, to me, this was even bigger for Stevens to win. Because they were up 3-2 in the series. He had to get this team home to the next round. And even if they would have lost, it wouldn't have been a death knell or it wouldn't have been a complete black mark on Stevens. But for all the credit and for all the accolades that he's received since he's been an NBA coach, a lot of people would have looked at that as like, uh, they were up 3-2 and that was a series that they should have won. So he gets out of it with the victory. He goes on to a conference final. And why would this be any different than what we've seen with Boston and Toronto this matchup here with the Celtics and Heat. We know the Heat are going to be rested, led by Jimmy Butler. They have great role players, great complimentary players on that team. This is going to be a war of attrition. I could see this being a long series. I know I usually pick against my teams in these stretches. I'm going to say Boston wins this in seven. I just think that a little bit more youth on their side. And the Heat have a lot of youth too. You know, Duncan Robinson, Bam Adebayo, Tyler Harrow. They got guys on the team. And like I said, great role players too. They've certainly bought in and they have done more than what anybody has expected here in this NBA postseason. They've been the surprise by far. They've only lost one game in two series. But I think the Celtics with, and the coaching, you have to give the edge to Spolstra. But I just think with Kemba and having his moments in this postseason, but you would think he would do just enough We know about the duel of Tatum and Brown. And they may get Gordon Hayward back at some point in the series. And if Hayward could be any semblance of what he can be, I think that's going to push him over the top into an NBA final. And I'll say this right now, whether it's Clippers or Denver winning this, the Lakers are going to win the next round. I would think it's six, maybe even five. Who knows? But obviously it's such to judge because you don't know if it's going to be the Clippers or the Nuggets. So obviously we'll have to wait and see about that. So that's what you have there with the NBA people. Let's move on. I'll quickly go through the NHL. I'm sure people want to listen to what I have to say about week one in the NFL as well as MLB and a few other things that we got to touch on before we say goodbye. The NHL right now, as I said at the top, this has been a lackluster postseason. When you think about it, their two biggest games this postseason was the very first game Right, think about this, people. You have to go all the way back to game one of Tampa and Columbus. The very first game of the postseason where it went four overtimes and Tampa won, I believe, three to two or four to three. Well, it doesn't matter. They won in overtime in the fourth overtime where the game started at three and it ended a little bit after nine o'clock. And the second game of this postseason was the game seven between Dallas and Colorado where Kiravanta scored the overtime goal and got his hat trick to propel them to the round where we're in now as their one win away from going to the Stanley Cup Finals. When you look at this whole postseason, those are the two games that are going to stick out. And yes, there have been some overtime games in between. We get that the overtime game between Vegas and Dallas the other night was one, was it going to be memorable? No, because 31 seconds into the overtime, they were able to score was Alexander Radulov. So you didn't even get into your seat there after the intermission and getting started out of that uh, overtime where the minute you sat down and got something from the fridge, the game was over. So I'm sure Gary Bettman and company are not too happy with the way this postseason has gone. And it could only get worse if you have a Dallas-Tampa Stanley Cup final. 
Because let's face it, two teams from the South, no original six teams. We understand Dallas is a big market, but again, hockey, nobody's going to gravitate to the Stars. Tampa, we know that for the hockey fan, they're aware of how good Tampa is going back to last year in the big regular season that they had and now making it back to the Stanley Cup final, which I'll tip my hand and say that that's where they're going to go because I don't think they're going to lose three in a row here to the Islanders and we'll get to that in a second. But when you have Dallas and Tampa as your two Stanley Cup finalists, yes, you're not going to get a lot of eyeballs to the sets to watch that. And I don't care how well he wants to spin it. Oh, it's great to get those markets involved. Oh, it's going to expand the hockey fan, even the sports fan. No, no, no. Nobody cares. Sorry to say there, Mr. Bettman. No one cares. I think the best case scenario would be to have the Islanders in Vegas there. Not saying that because I'm an Islander fan. Only because of New York. And granted that the Islanders are a far cry from what they once were as far as their heyday is concerned, but at least they have that that they could sell to the public if they made it to a final. And then Vegas, twice in the past three years, making it to the Stanley Cup Finals. We know they made it two years ago and lost to Washington. Expansion team getting back there. They could sell that part from the Western Conference side. And to me, that would have been the perfect Stanley Cup for NBC And not that that's going to draw many more people to watch, but a lot better than Dallas and Tampa. And Dallas has pretty much been in control of the series. We know Robin Leonard had this tremendous streak of not giving up any goals, 171 minutes of shutout hockey. But they have not been able to get over the hump. A lot of close games between Dallas and Vegas. But you have to give credit to the goalie. Anton Kudobin was incredible there a couple nights ago as they were able to get two big goals from their veterans there and Joe Pavelski and Jamie Benn to get themselves to a 3-1 series lead. And Vegas, they just have not been able to score. Part of it is Kudobin. Part of it is that they've just not been able to get the opportunities to cash in to get themselves even in the series. And now that they're one game away from being eliminated here in this postseason. And Dallas, give them credit. Colorado, they were busted. They were hurt. They had to use a third-string goalie. A lot of people thought Colorado could go right to the cup, and they had a bunch of injuries themselves besides the goaltending situation. But give credit to the Stars. In fact, if they win this, this will be the first time they'll go to a cup final since 2000 when they lost to the Devils in six, if you remember that. And then when we look at the East, the one game that the Islanders are going to look at all offseason and they're going to kick themselves in the rear was game two. Game one, they got blitzed out of the building. Part of that, I'm sure, was Tampa was well-rested. Islanders had a grueling seven-game series where they had to fly from Toronto to Edmonton, 48-hour turnover, two time zones, etc. No excuse. They play terrible. They look like they were standing still as the lightning just skated through them, around them, etc. Lose 8-2, and I thought, all right, as bad and as ugly as that was, I'm sure they'll bounce back in a game too. All I could say is that they had many opportunities to win this game including a five-minute major in the first period, which they weren't able to get a goal. They had a five-on-three in the third period, which they weren't able to get a goal. And even though the goal that the Tampa Bay Lightning scored, which was, to me, a joke, not the goal itself, but prior to that, they had an icing where the defenseman, Shattenkirk, was there to play the puck, and I believe the puck even bounced off his stick. The linesman in the background did wave his arm up for icing, with the referee at the goal line, why can't the referee overrule that? Now, mind you, I haven't followed hockey the way I had in years. 
as everybody knows, hockey to me, which was 1A next to baseball as far as my, as far as my favorite is concerned, now I, I could pretty much care less. So as far as the rules are concerned, I don't know if the referee could have overruled that, but that was just an awful call. Shattenkirk played the puck. It looked like he even hit off his stick, or at least it grazed off his stick, and they called in a nice thing. Ensuing faceoff, Hedman scores the goal, they tie it. So that was a bad break for the Islanders. But you can't just blame it all on that. They had the opportunities to win, and then with 7.8 seconds to go, Nikita Kucherov bangs in a goal from point blank, and they win game two, and I knew that that was the series right there. Even though game three, with a 3-1 lead, and Tampa coming back to tie the game, Brock Nelson had the goal, which pretty much iced it, and then they got the empty netter there at the end, which I love because then Matt Martin got into a fight with Barclay Goodrow, which is a guy who cross-checked Brock Nelson's face into the glass in Game 3. So he got a little payback there and sending a message, which you know I love. But then what can you say about yesterday? Brock Nelson again scores a big goal there halfway through the second period or past the halfway point of the second period. And then just 15 seconds later, Blake Coleman gets the equalizer. And then before you even hold your breath, 12 seconds later, Andre Palat gets the go-ahead goal and Tampa just cruises from there. And it's tough to kill the Islanders here. This has been a great run. They're not going to win the series. Tampa's a much better team. The one thing about Tampa is that they have skaters abound. They are a prototypical finesse team. You have to play physical against them. And that's what the Islanders did in Game 3. Even to a extent, they did that in Game 2 as well. And it's easy for us to watch from home to say, well, just bang them, bang them, bang them. Yeah, you could do that. But of course, it's going to take a toll on the Islanders as well. Because you could bang them all you want. You can knock them down. You can knock them down. You can do everything. But there's going to be a time where the Islanders are going to be tired of hitting. And you're going to start lunging with your stick. You're not going to be in position to make plays. And as you saw there yesterday, Tampa took advantage. And obviously, they won't win away from going to the Cup. Now, if it's Dallas and Tampa, I'm going to have to pick Tampa. I don't want to pick them. With my heart, I'm going to pick Dallas to win this series. And this isn't a jinx by any means. A reverse jinx where the Islands will come back and win three or even for the Vegas Golden Knights for them to do the same. But how I look at it is is that the Tampa Bay Lightning, this is their year to win. And look what happened last year. They had the best record in the sport. They literally annihilated everybody and then they got swept in the first round by Columbus in just embarrassing fashion. So now, here they are, one win away. They know that they could taste it. They could sense it. And they want to go ahead and not only see the deal here, but also in the next round as well. And I would think, as much as I'm going to be rooting for Dallas, I'm going to pick Tampa to win in six. Because that series is going to start. If it doesn't start in the next couple days, by the end of the week it's going to start. And obviously I won't have time to preview it. So, whether it's a reverse jinx or not, and it's not people, because there's no way I see the Islanders coming back down 3-1. Same for Vegas. And away we go. So that's your NHL Stanley Cup playoff review and preview. Let's, uh, let me see, any other news and notes? Nothing else there for the NHL to report. All right, I know everybody wants to hear about NFL Week 1. And everybody's been waiting, bated breath, for the league to kick off. We understand there's been no buzz. And if you didn't listen to my NFL preview, please do so. It's the episode prior to this, 154. I go through everything. Soup to nuts, wall-to-wall NFL football, including a wild Super Bowl pick, which I don't think I've seen anybody else pick. So you definitely want to tune into that if you can. 
But when you look at the winners and losers yesterday, I'm not, not going to go through every game. I'm just going to go winners and losers here. To me, the big winners are as follows. The first one I'm going to say off the bat is Arizona. For them to go on the road in San Francisco, I know the whole Super Bowl hangover with the Niners, that's going to be hanging in the balance here, not only after this game, but for weeks on end, unless the Niners get on a run. But for Arizona, a team, as we all know, has some young talent. DeAndre Hopkins could be the guy that could really rejuvenate this offense. We know Larry Fitzgerald has been a staple there, and he is Mr. Arizona Cardinal. But we all know he's a little long in the tooth. Not as explosive as he once was. We know he's that slot receiver who's going to catch those balls over the middle. But to have that game-breaking wide receiver, and this is why they traded for him, yesterday showed you why he is arguably the best receiver in football. 14 catches, 151 yards I believe he had. Just a phenomenal game by him. So to me, Arizona comes out on top as one of the top winners. The second team on the winner list yesterday was the Green Bay Packers. The Packers came out firing. I know the score looked like it was closer than what it was, but Aaron Rodgers, when you throw for 364 and four touchdowns and pretty much had the game in cruise control, on the road, we understand no fans in the building in U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis, but for Green Bay to come out firing like that to show to the rest of the league that, yeah, we can look at the NFC, and yes, we have the defending NFC champions and also Seattle and what they did Yesterday, and you can look at Tampa with Tom Brady and New Orleans, but ah, Green Bay certainly put their claim in the NFC to say we're definitely going to be a team that's going to be heard from this year. So to me, they're winner number two. The third winner, and I look at yesterday, and this is on a lesser scale, but you got to give it up with all that's happened in the offseason and Ron Rivera going through now cancer treatments and getting IVs in the locker room. But for the Washingtonians to be down 17-0 to the Eagles and to score 27 on answer to win that game, they're not going to go places this year. They're not going to be part of the playoff mix. But you got to look at what they did yesterday and say to yourself that, wow, you know, for them to come from behind. And what does that say about the Eagles? And I talked about it in my NFL preview. And it's only one game, not to get crazy. But I think the Eagles are going to be a disappointing team this year. And boy, if that was any indication of what the year is going to look like for the Eagles, then all you had to do was just watch the game yesterday. Because to be up three scores and to not score a point for the rest of the game after whatever it was halfway through the second quarter was just an abomination on their part. But kudos to the Washingtonians as they uh, come from behind to win 27-17. Now, sadly, on this list is a bunch of losers. All right, you could say Buffalo, too, is another winner there, but it was against the Jets, and the Jets can't get out of their own way. Adam Gaze, who knows if he's going to be long for a job this year. He even actually admitted that it was wrong for him to bring in Le'Veon Bell after he came off with a hamstring injury, and he actually put him back in the game for five snaps. Why is he the coach of that team? It's beyond me. He needs to be long gone. So, yes, you could say Buffalo and what Josh Allen did. He threw for over 300 yards for the first time, and he rushed for a touchdown, and all the yards, etc. But the losers stick out more than the winners, I think, in my opinion. And the first one, by far, is Tampa Bay. Now, Brady admitted that he was not sharp. Had some bad moments in the game. Pick six. He threw two interceptions. Was definitely off on some throws. No crowd noise in New Orleans. Didn't have to worry about that. But Tampa Bay off to a very slow start. In which a lot of, and no surprise because it is New Orleans and we know New Orleans is a Super Bowl favorite as well. But I don't know if you want to gauge the Tom Brady Tampa regime on this one game. 
But if you're looking ahead and kind of wonder how this team's going to perform moving forward, if you're going to look at this one game, you got to just scrap it. Brady will be back. You know that the offense at some point will be in sync. Yesterday just wasn't their day. But they still have to end up being a loser on here because they did not perform well and Brady was inconsistent throughout the game. I don't know if it was week one jitters, new new team, new coordinator, coach, etc. But with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, certainly not off to the right foot they wanted to be with all the hype coming into the season about that team. Number two, I could say the Niners, as I touched on just a couple of minutes ago, the slow start. We know they're still going to be heard from. We know how good of a defensive team they are. But I think the other team, and I know that a lot of the Cowboy fans, they probably had Jason Garrett flashbacks. They're also number two on my list because when yesterday at 20 to 17, for them to kick a field goal to tie the game on the road, you figure would have been the right move on a fourth and three. But McCarthy goes for it. He has a pass in the flat to CeeDee Lamb and gets tackled to the point where the Cowboys were not to be heard from. I know the controversy later on in the game on that final drive, the push off there from Michael Gallup to Jalen Ramsey. And yes, was Gallup's arm extended? It was. But I think Ramsey sold the play. Ramsey definitely sold it and got his Academy Award to get the flag. I know that that was controversial. A lot of the Cowboy fans thought it was a BS call and me watching it. And that's not to say Gallup was infallible there because he did push. He did extend the arm, but he didn't extend the arm to the point where it was blatant. And I understand that the catch there would have set him up in field goal range and possibly would have tied the game. I believe it was less than 30 seconds. I don't know the timeout situation off the top of my head. But the Cowboys certainly came up small there and that fourth and three, they should have kicked the field goal. You have to play the percentages there. I get that he's probably looking at his offense, wanted to be aggressive, wanted to show them that, hey, we could get these three yards. Let's go for it. But not when you're at the 10-yard line. If you're on the 25, definitely in the 35, we understand that. You don't want to kick a 51-52 or even a 47-48, even though it's indoors, perfect conditions. But when you're at the 10-yard line, get the points and go to the sidelines. So that was just a bad move there. So then, to me, in my eyes, they're number two. And my third loser from yesterday, I know the Ravens are looking for some payback this year, especially with the way their season ended. And Lamar Jackson is flying out of the gate in MVP form as he was last year. But for the Cleveland Browns to lay a proverbial deuce in midfield there at M&T Bank Stadium, going in, we get with the young coach and Kevin Stefanski, first-time head coach, We don't have to talk about the firepower on offense. We don't have to talk about their defense, whatever. And their defense was atrocious yesterday. Because Lamar Jackson did not run for a ton of yards. It wasn't a vintage Lamar Jackson performance as far as him throwing for 200 yards, but also rushing for 115. In fact, as a team total, they only rushed for 107 yards. And that's going to be the factor for the Ravens this year. If Lamar Jackson is going to have games like that yesterday, where he was 20 for 25, what did he throw for? 250 some odd yards? three touchdowns and rush for less yards and not have to rely on his legs to win games, then the Ravens are going to go to Super Bowl. To me, that's the whole thing. If you could hold that team to anywhere between 100 to 120 yards a game, you'll have a chance to win. Because chances are you're neutralizing him as far as his running game because all that's going to do is just open up the passing game. But it seemed like they did it in reverse yesterday. 
So if you're the Ravens, I understand people can say, well, Jay Reels, why don't you call the Ravens one of the winners yesterday? Well, eh, that would have been easy only because they were at home. And right, they won 38-6. to But to me, this game was more of an indictment on Cleveland because they didn't even show up. And for all the pomp and circumstance, for all the talent on this team, I'm not trying to say they had to go in there and win the game. And mind you, last year, they went into M&T Bank Stadium and put up 40 points on that team. So for them to not even show, and they could have been losing number one this week, but we had to put Tampa there because, of course, the Buccaneers and all the hype that they had going into the season. But that was just an abomination. Just an awful, pathetic job by Cleveland showing up in that building in their first game against the division opponent and just not do anything. So I don't want to hear it from the Brown fan. So that was just a pathetic job by them. And who knows what that's going to mean for their season. Not to say that they're going to go 7-9 or 6-10, but that is just an awful start for a team that's expected to do big things. And that's what you have. I know Cam in New England, victorious in his first game. And then thank you, Indianapolis Colts, because for the third time, and I believe in the last four or five years, or the four or five times I've been doing the knockout pool, I've been thrown to the trash week one because I picked Indianapolis in my knockout pool. And when I saw the score was 17 up at one point, I said, Indy's going to lose this game. There's just no way. And give credit to Gardner Minshew. And like I said, you had that little bit of magic with him. And Phillip Rivers did not have a good day yesterday, even with the new offensive line, new team. And Minshew is a guy that, to me, he's more character than he is talent. Not to say he's not talented. But Minshew is a guy that he has a lot of guts and a lot of guile. He's not a guy that's going to throw it with the best of them out there. But you know what? The guy does the job. But we got to see if he's able to sustain that long term because we've seen Minshew in certain games last year where he'll throw three picks and fumble twice. But the coach yesterday, just pathetic. So my knockout pool week one, I'm gone. I think last week I got to maybe week five before I was gone. And I think the year before that, I picked the Saints, got knocked out week one. And I also believe two years before that, I picked New Orleans and same deal. So that's what you have there with the Colts. But other than that, I love the opening of the Seattle-Atlanta game where opening kickoff, then everybody went down on one knee. I'm sure that was to the chagrin of a lot of NFL fans and people throughout this country. Well, tough, too bad. I thought that was an incredible gesture. The best one of the day by far. I know that yesterday, Dallas and the Rams, during the kickoff, you see Jerry Jones in the box and all of his players, well, a couple of players were kneeling, not a lot. And you've seen some gestures throughout the league where people were kneeling, fists up, etc. But a week one where you had some excitement, and I'm just sure with NFL being back was excitement enough, but not a lot you could really sink your teeth into. Just the, those matchups or just those winners and losers there were the key ones for me yesterday. You know, I'm not going to sit here about the Bears winning against the Lions or the Vegas Raiders winning in Carolina. You know, I'm not going to get crazy about these games. I know the Bengals missed a game-time field goal where the kicker pulled his hamstring. Right, I'm not going to, again, to me, week in and week out, I'll go through some storylines or headlines, but it's going to be the winners and losers of the week. And that's what we got where tonight we have two games where the Steelers will play the Giants at MetLife. This is a game where hopefully the Steelers, with their offense and obviously with their defense, will do just enough to pull out a victory. I know they're favored by six points. Ben Roethlisberger's first game since week two of last year. We'll see how he performs. You would hope that the Steelers would do just enough. I mean, the Giants right now, we know Saquon Barkley 
and Daniel Jones, their offense is actually pretty good. And their defense is certainly going to be not confused with the 86 Giants or any of their Super Bowl teams of recent vintage. But the Steelers should be able to come away with a victory, but sometimes they always go the long, hard, scenic route. So we'll see how that shakes down. But I could see them getting off to a good start here tonight to get their first victory of the season. And then Tennessee and Denver. Let's see Ryan Tannehill now in year two of the Tennessee Titans and Derrick Henry running the football the way he has, especially in the postseason last year against the Denver team where with Drew Locke being the focal point and the guy that's going to be under center here, at least for the first part of this year, if not all this year, no Von Miller as he had surgery to fix a tendon that was in his ankle. So chances are you're probably not going to see him at all this year. Uh, I don't know how to gauge that game. I could see this as being a low-scoring game where maybe the high altitude in Denver, I'll say Denver by a field goal. And as we look ahead quickly to week two, now these games here, I know it's a week-by-week thing, and you're going to see a lot of these games not be too good. And for the most part, a lot of the play wasn't sloppy from what I gathered. I thought thought it was going to be like that. Same with some injuries. So we'll have to wait and see. I know Marlon Mack is supposed to go for an MRI today of the Colts. That could be a huge blow for them. So we'll see what the prognosis is for the Colt running back. But next week, your Thursday night game, Cincinnati at Cleveland. And when you look at the schedule here, you do not have a lot of sexy games. The Sunday night game is New England at Seattle. The Sunday afternoon game of the week for the AFC this time, because yesterday was Tampa and New Orleans, is Baltimore at Houston. Your Monday night game is the Saints traveling to Las Vegas to play the Raiders in their first ever game in that state and in that stadium, Allegiant Stadium. The Giants at Chicago, Atlanta and Dallas, Detroit at Green Bay, Buffalo at Miami, San Francisco at the Jets, the Rams at Philadelphia, Denver at Pittsburgh, Carolina at Tampa. I mean, you have terrible games. I mean, these games are brutal. You might as well start with Baltimore-Houston and then the Sunday night game and then the Monday night game. And the only reason why the Monday night game is sexy is because it's the Raiders opening up a new stadium. If it was in Oakland, even with them winning their first game, but we'll see. And I picked the Raiders to be a surprise team this year. So not a lot of great games there on uh, the Week 2 docket, to say the least. And quickly, I'm just going to mention something about college football. I know that the season started right before Labor Day. And for the most part, it started over this weekend where you had some of the big teams in college football play this weekend. I didn't follow it one second. I know there's been a buzz about the Big Ten maybe looking to rethink this and possibly play this year. We'll see what happens here in the coming days because they're going to have to make a decision soon. I understand that they could probably start their season September, if not This coming weekend, maybe the following weekend at the latest. But they don't want to waste any more time. So they're going to have to make a pretty swift decision here as to whether the Big Ten is going to come back. We know the Pac-12 is not going to play. But college football right now, I just cannot get into people. And for the dying world college football fan that's wondering, come on, Jay Reels, you're not going to make a mention about college football? I'll say this. As we get deeper into the month, I will. Right now, I'm not going to go crazy about these first couple of weeks because we don't have a lot of buzz about college football and not only that but being here in the northeast college football is pretty much on the bottom of the totem pole and that's not to say i'm going to neglect it that's not to say i'm not going to pay any mind to it i will not do that but 
right now, can I get crazy talking about a college football season knowing that half the teams aren't going to be playing? As we get deeper into it, slowly but surely, and of course with all the other sports being of a higher priority, college football right now is not going to get any burn on the podcast, at least for this week. So I just thought to put that out there for anybody that's wondering what I had to say about college football. Don't worry, your time will come. All right, now to turn my attention to baseball. As we get into the home stretch here, the final two weeks, which will end two weeks from yesterday. That's right, July 23rd when we had Yankees Nationals. We're thinking, all right, it's 60 games, it's two months. Well, we're almost at the end. So before I even get into the pennant races, just a couple of news and notes from the week. I know that Albert Pujols over the weekend tied Willie Mays for fifth all-time in home runs, was humbled by it. And then yesterday, you also had a no-hitter from a guy named Alec Mills, who nobody's ever heard of, as he no-hits the Milwaukee Brewers, who continue to spiral out of control. You have this story that's coming out of Nashville that Justin Timberlake is looking to lead a group to bring baseball to Tennessee, to Nashville. I don't know how that's going to work, because you already have 30 teams in baseball now. You're going to have an imbalance there. You're going to have to bring in another team, whether that means Montreal, quite possible. But for Nashville to get a baseball team, I can't gauge how that market is. I'm sure it's been growing. I don't know what type of fan base will come from Nashville as far as baseball is concerned. But it seems to be, at least from my side, it's a little bit of a reach. I'm sure baseball would love to get some expansion. I'm sure they would even like to have a little bit of balance, maybe even take out some of the interleague play as I'm sure it's I'm not going to say it's hurt baseball but it certainly doesn't help I would think if you do the city rivals whether it's obviously Mets Yankees Angels Dodgers White Sox Cubs you could sprinkle in a few others you know Marlins and Rays for Florida Cleveland and Cincinnati for Ohio there's some that you could certainly keep and maybe they'll play six games a year but I would love it if they just do away with interleague altogether. In fact, have more of a balance in the schedule where obviously in the division you'll play 19 times. We understand that. That's fine. But let's add some other series. So where let's say maybe the Dodgers could come to New York twice to play the Mets. Or have Mike Trout and the Angels come out to play the Yankees twice. And we understand we'll flip-flop. Maybe the following year the Yankees will have to go out to Anaheim twice. Etc. And just go down the list. The White Sox and the Central, they could come to Yankee Stadium two times. Same for the Cubs coming to City Field to play the Mets. I think that would be much better than to have this interleague where we have to play AL East versus NL East. And we understand this year is different because of COVID. But I would think moving forward, maybe after next year with the new collective bargaining agreement, maybe they can rework the schedule to where they only have the geographic rivalries meet as opposed to just having division play this division. I think that would be better suited for baseball if you ask me. And you had a couple of weird baseball games this week that even with the Brewers not playing well, they did win a game 19 to nothing on Thursday. And that was to be upstaged by the Braves because that 19-run deficit was not big enough because the Braves had a 20-run deficit as they won 29-9, to second-highest total by a team in baseball history. If you remember... I forgot how many years ago, but the Texas Rangers put up a 30 spot against the Baltimore Orioles and they won 30-3, to so you had a football score there to say the least. But the one thing that was interesting about that is that 29-9 to score 
It was the first new final score in baseball since 1999. I mean, think about it. How many 29-9 games have you ever heard of? And obviously this was the first one, but the point is, is that this was the first new final score since 99 where the Reds beat the Rockies 24-12. to It's not every day that you see a new final score like you did there on Thursday between the Marlins and Braves. So that was something to put there of note. And this week you have two key series in baseball where the one that's going to be highlighted the most is the AL Central between the White Sox and Twins. They're going to play the first of four as the White Sox hold the slimmest of margins, a one-game lead, percentage points. Actually, they have two games and a loss as the White Sox are 30-16, and 16, the Twins are 30-18. and 18. So they're going to go head-to-head to see what's going to happen there as far as the front runner in the AL Central is concerned. Now, mind you, both teams are going to make the playoffs. I would think you want to win a division because you'll be guaranteed a home first round and still plenty of baseball to be played, but these four games are going to be interesting to see whether or not the upstart White Sox will be able to put a stranglehold on this division to a twin team that, as we all know, won a division last year, Bomba squad, all the home runs, and we'll see if their presence is going to be known here this week as both of these teams match up. And then the other series down the coast in Southern California where you have the Dodgers visiting the Padres. The Padres have a two-game makeup where the Dodgers have been in first place all along. But it'll be interesting to see if the Padres are going there and sweep. If they do, they'll actually be in first place in the NL West. But chances are all the Dodgers have to do is just win the one game and you would think they'll cruise to a division title which would be their eighth straight here for the team that cannot get over the hump as we've chronicled several times here, whether it's in the postseason or obviously in the World Series. So they're going to be that much closer to winning another division. And let's see what happens here in these three games against the Padres starting the night. But as we go through, not necessarily the divisions, I know a lot of things have happened. Oakland has certainly put the division away last week. They won four or five against the Astros in that five-game series early in the week from Monday to Thursday. So you could pretty much put up the AL West flag there for the Oakland A's. Now let's see what they could do in the postseason because as we all know, Oakland can make it to the postseason, but they never do anything in the postseason. But the one thing that they have on their side is that they could actually play a division series best of five as opposed to the last two years because remember, they lost both wildcard games two years ago to the Yankees and then last year at home to the Rays. So now they can have some home cooking. They could ease into a series as opposed to a winner-take-all as they've had to experience the last two years. But as a whole in the American League, as I've said last week, pretty much it's just a matter of seeding one through eight. I know the Yankees have played better. Obviously with the Orioles coming in, they had to beat up on them where the Orioles beat up on them last weekend in Baltimore. So the Yankees are going to be fine as I've said all along. But when you look at the American League in a whole, the Yankees right now currently reside in the seventh seed in the American League, because you have the White Sox, Rays, A's are the top three, Minnesota, Toronto, and Cleveland the next three, and then you have the Yankees who have a three-game lead ahead of the Astros for the final spot, and the Astros right now are game under 500, I might add. So you also have Seattle, you have to throw them in the mix as they're a game and a half, and I have to see if the Mariners and Astros play again, which I'll look in a second, because then you also have the Orioles and Tigers are two and a half games back, with about 13... 14 games to play. So even though they're not going to make it, if you ask me. But I I guess I have to throw both of those teams in there because they may actually have a shot to make it to the postseason. But again, I don't think they will. 
And as I look on the schedule here, they will host Houston next Monday for three games. So let's see where we're at a week from today as we get that much more closer to the postseason. But the Mariners still have three games with the Astros. And those are going to be huge if they're still in the thick of this thing a week from today. Now, I've talked about the National League being a lot more wide open. Going back to last week, you had a very interesting series which will conclude today in Miami. The Marlins and Phillies are playing seven games over the course of five days. They just finished playing six over four where the Marlins have won four of those six games. And the Marlins are putting themselves in decent position, although that could change between both teams at any point. But when we look at the National League, I found that series to be fascinating because if the Phillies were looking to get any separation, this was the time for them to do it. As we know, the top two teams in each division will make it to the postseason. You don't want to make it as a wild card. You don't have to want to worry about having to go that route. But when the Phillies and Marlins will conclude today, I believe it's at 4-10 is the final game between those two teams. But give it up to the Marlins. They've done phenomenal here. They're a half game ahead of the Phillies right now. They've made up two games over the course of this weekend and can actually make up a third if they win today, which would be just a great job on their part. So you got to give them credit. Now, looking at this here, Dodgers, Padres, Braves are your top three teams in the National League. Followed by the Cubs, Marlins, Phillies. And then you have the Cardinals and Giants rounding out the 7th and 8th seeds. You have the Rockies, the Brewers, a game and a half behind the Giants. And you figure the Giants or Rockies will knock each other out because I'm sure they have another series to be played considering they're in the NL West. The Brewers, who knows? Like I said, they have not played well here throughout the course of the year. Kristen Yelich is now at the Mendoza line. I believe he's batting 199 right now. The Reds, they've lost Sonny Gray. He's going to be on the IL with a back strain. So that's going to be a big loss for them as far as their rotation goes. There are two games behind the Giants. And then you have the Mets who are two games behind as well. But they have to leapfrog all those teams. And all I'm going to say about the Mets here, people, for the most optimistic pie-in-the-sky Met fan, and I don't know many out there, If you think that being two games behind with 13 left to play, that they have a shot to make it to the postseason, well, here are the two problems. One, you have to leapfrog all these teams in the process just to get to the Cardinals, number one. And number two, do you know the Mets conclude their season with? Three against the Phillies. Three against the Braves at Citi Field this week. The Rays next week for three at Citi Field. And then they go to Washington for four. And even if they're in the mix going into that weekend against Washington as bad as they've been, you know the Nationals are going to do whatever it takes to get the Mets out. And I got to be honest with you, by then the Mets will be out. So they're not going to make it to the postseason. The Steve Cohen bidding, the purchase of the Mets is that much closer to being finalized. So thank goodness for that. And that's pretty much all that I'm going to say about the Mets for this year. Unless Jacob DeGrom, who had another fine performance there Friday night against the Blue Jays and got run support that I'm sure he probably fell out of his dugout chair as he watched all the runs piling up there Friday night in Buffalo. He's going to be the only thing to look for to see if he gets a third straight Cy Young. But we know you Darvish has had a great year for the Cubs and Trevor Bauer has fallen off a little bit here. So who knows? We'll see if uh, Jacob DeGrom, even in this short sprint season, and I get that people will look at that with a little bit of an asterisk because of the season, but he does have a shot to get a third straight Cy Young. So that's what you got there with the baseball people. A couple of things before we say goodbye. I'll go from US Open 
Review to U.S. Open preview from tennis right into golf. I'll start off with what happened yesterday in the men's final where Dominic Team came roaring back. First time in 71 years that an opponent in a final down 0-2 came back to win the championship. He was down 2-6-4-6 before storming back 6-4-6-3-7-6 to Alexander Zeverev. And I know Zeverev had a heavy heart where he revealed after the game that both of his parents had contracted COVID-19, although that they were negative and on the men, but couldn't make it to New York to witness this. And obviously it would have just been a devastating loss to digest. And I'm sure it was for Zeverev, but team is a guy that has been on the cusp. He's made some runs here. He's actually performed in four finals as far as Grand Slam tournaments are concerned. And Did not win one until yesterday, and what a way to do it as he gets his first major out in Flushing Meadow. Oh, what could you say? That was just something that was unforeseen. Even as he was coming back, you're thinking, ah, Zeverev will probably get the fourth set and maybe even the fifth set, but he had all the momentum in the world, a little over four hours. Congratulations to him. Just a historic match, epic in so many facets as he wins his first ever Grand Slam tournament. And this could be twofold. Well, really threefold when you think about it. Was this more of an epic comeback by team or was it an ultimate gag by Zeverev? Because how could you be up two love and sets and then just spit the bit? I understand it's more of a comeback because you haven't seen it in 71 years, but you also got to think, you know, what happened with Zeverev there that he wasn't able to seal the deal? So those are your first two things. And then the third thing, as I talked about last week, is the asterisk because of what happened to Novak Djokovic. And I understand it could have been unfair that he had to be disqualified for the tournament, but he had to be held accountable as he hit the line judge in the throat by accident. Certainly unintentional. But there's still an asterisk next to it, even with team coming back from 0-2, because if that was Novak Djokovic, could you imagine? There's no way. Djokovic probably would have won in three or four sets. We'll never know. Obviously, that's just based on what I feel and what I think that if Djokovic was there for the final, and I don't even know if he was on the other side of the draw, because for all we know, he could have faced him in the semifinal, Dominic team. But we'll never know about that. I guess for the diehard tennis fan, they may look at it as like, oh, it's not an asterisk. He still had to get to a final and what he did and, and the way he came back. All right, I understand. But without having... Djokovic there, uh, to me in my eyes, I'm going to see it as an asterisk. I mean, it's all there is to it. And then on the women's side, you had Serena lose to Victoria Azarenka in the semifinal. And Serena was cruising in the first set, even partway through the second set. And then it just fell apart for her. At the end, I know her Achilles had flared up and that seemed to be an issue. But if she got off to a great start, why was she unable to finish? Who knows? Maybe it was just becoming uncomfortable. And even though she did say that that was part of it, but did give Azarenka all the credit, gave her props. I believe it's the first time in a Grand Slam semifinal or final that Azarenka finally beat Serena Williams. But at the end of the day, it was all Naomi Osaka as she wins the Women's Championship, second time in three years for her. Third time overall, she won the Australian in 2019. She's number three in the world, and this is what I find surprising. I know Ash Barty, who did not participate in the U.S. Open due to COVID-19 is not going to participate in the French either. And it hasn't been revealed whether or not Osaka is going to perform 
at Roland Garros in the French, which was just in a couple of weeks. But for Osaka and with everything that she's done here so far, you would think she'd be the number one player in the world. But I saw as of this morning, she's ranked number three in the world. Excuse me, but I think that when all is said and done, we'll see if she's able to get to the French Open. And if she's able to win that, she'll be number one hands down. Because Barty, you're not going to see until the Australian next year. But kudos to Osaka and what she's done. And she won in three sets. In fact, she dropped the first set to Azarenka before winning the next two sets, 6-3, 6-3. So congratulations to both Dominic team and Naomi Osaka. And now to segue that to the U.S. Open Golf, which will start in the next county. Right up the road, right up the hutch here from where I live. In Mamaronek and Wingfoot. A couple of notes before we even get to a little preview. Brooks Kepka is going to be out, so you're not going to see him. He is one, two of the past three U.S. Opens. He's had some knee issues that he's dealing with, so you're not going to see him at this tournament. And remember, he had uh, finished second last year to Gary Woodland at Pebble Beach. So he's been dominant in this particular tournament over the years, and you will not see him. And that's going to be a big blow because we all know not only is he a top player, but to have a name like Kepka not be in the mix is a loss for golf. Also, Scotty Scheffler, who was a guy that in the PGA was tied for fourth in which Colin Morikawa won the PGA, which was the first golf tournament of the year. He'll be sidelined due to COVID. I believe he's the second player on the tour to come down with COVID, and you're not going to see Scotty Scheffler perform here over the weekend. And when you look at the field, we know who the regulars are, the Dustin Johnsons. We'll see Colin Morikawa, who's had a phenomenal year this year on the tour. The Leela Westwoods, Rory McIlroy's. We know who the cast of characters are. Now you wonder about Lee Westwood in particular, even Ricky Fowler, the players who are the quote-unquote best players and not win a major. They're going to be front and center. We know Dustin Johnson's been phenomenal here. We saw him, I don't want to be harsh to say spit the bit, there at the PGA outside of San Francisco last month, but when Dustin Johnson, as dominant as the players he's been in throughout the tour and has had all these victories, you would think with only one major under his belt, is this going to be the time and place for him to win major number two? So we'll see. This should be fascinating. I love the majors. I love the masters, which we'll see in November. It's going to be a much different feel in November than it would be in April. But obviously, we have a lot of time between now and then to talk about it. But the U.S. Open, which will open here Thursday, we'll certainly keep our attention on that and recap and review it this time next week. And also, one other note, John Daly, who announced the other day that he has bladder cancer. Now, John Daly, for those who don't know him, he's a golfer who's won a couple of major tournaments, be it three decades ago. He's a guy that's on the edge, grip it and rip it type of guy. He's that type of guy that will drink beer and smoke cigarettes on the golf course while playing golf. Now, obviously, he's not going to do that on the tour, of course, but Daly is a guy who's lived on the edge, carefree, just a big-time personality in his heyday when he was a top player in golf. But to announce that he has bladder cancer, and we know he hasn't really taken care of himself. He's a guy that drinks a ton of Diet Cokes, chain-smoking cigarettes, I'm sure a beer drinker, etc. And even feels as if that this cancer, despite the fact that he had surgery for it to be removed, doctors have said that it possibly will come back. 
So that's something we're going to monitor here for one John Daly. Again, all you got to do is just YouTube it or look it up. He was a guy that had the mullet, not in the best of shape, but was certainly a character on the circuit there. And just for him announcing that, does it come as a surprise? It doesn't, but it's still sad and discouraging news nevertheless. So thoughts and prayers for him to hopefully get his health around, as I like to say, to take back his health and get rid of this cancer once and for all. All right, let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is former Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker Ryan Shazier. I'm sure everybody knows this story. Number one pick out of Ohio State back in 2014. Suffered that spinal cord injury in that Monday night game against Cincinnati in 2017. And then was able to take a few steps. A lot of people thought he wouldn't even walk again, let alone play. But we saw him take his first steps. The one year of the draft, walking across the stage as he announced the draft pick, I believe that, I don't know if that was 2018 or maybe 2019. Well, anyway, he retired from the NFL, the game that he loved. He announced that on Twitter and just sad. He had all the makings of linebacker U, which we've seen over the years in Pittsburgh, had the speed, sideline to sideline. They had to draft a guy in Devin Bush out of Michigan to pretty much replace him and Unfortunately, he's a guy that's uh, he's going to be irreplaceable for many reasons. And for him having to step away from football, obviously a sad day for Steeler fans. And for the NFL, but now he can live his life and move on. And he's able to at least be able to walk and do what's necessary to lead and live a good life. So, Ryan, my man, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is Fox Sports 1 undisputed Skip Bayless. For his insensitive comments towards Dax Prescott's brother dealing with mental health. And Skip, I know that he says a lot of things just for clickbait. There's a lot of things that he says that makes you question. But when you talk about mental health in this country, and rightfully so, it is no laughing matter. So for him to actually go there, maybe he's the one that needs a head examination. Because why would he even think in a million years to even go there in that route is beyond me. I don't believe he's been fired and I'm not part of the whole cancel culture that, oh, he should be fired, whatever. His statement, his remarks are unforgivable. They are definitely worthy of him being suspended. Fired, maybe a little too strong, but he definitely needs to be suspended. And I don't believe Fox Sports has done that just yet. But just for him putting that out there, making that remark, Skip, you need to get your priorities in gear, my man. You are my zero of the week. All right, now we'll do it. Episode 155. Hope you enjoyed that as I took you through the sports landscape here on this latest edition of the J-Rolls podcast. Definitely check out my NFL preview if you haven't. I understand week one is almost in the books, but you can certainly hear everything that I have to say. I break down all the divisions. I go through my over-unders, surprise and disappointment picks, my knockout pick, which is already gone, my Indianapolis Colts, so you don't have to worry about that. But definitely peep that. It was certainly... Fun. I also had a guest on, my man Kevin the Viking fan, who was a longtime friend of mine. We had chopped it up about his team, their chances, the league, etc. So please, if you haven't uh, subscribed, now's your chance to do so. Once you finish listening to this podcast, I won't even have you pause right now. All you need to do when you're done, just go to your app on wherever you get your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, wherever it is. All you need to do, people, just hit subscribe. And even if you can't rate and review, I know you can't do that on Spotify, but whether you're on Apple, Google, 
all that does when you subscribe, rate, and review is increase the visibility of this podcast. And we all know there's a million podcasts out there. And then in turn, we'll generate some interest with people who aren't familiar with this podcast, whether it's the former or current athlete, the blogger, sports writer, studio host, broadcaster, etc. Because I want to have them come on the podcast later on the week. Monday's always my State of the Union with sports. And then Thursday to have that guest to come on to share their experience of what happened on the field, in the booth, in the press box, etc. So again, subscribe, rate, and review people. I would greatly appreciate it. And also, if you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts or follow me, what it is I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, you could do so on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast, which is Strictly Sports. Twitter, J Reels 1, just the number. Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page. And if you want to send me an email or hit me up with a DM on any of my aforementioned social media accounts, you could send me an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com, the old-fashioned way. So any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, please send it my way. And lastly, if you want to support my work and contribute to that, which I would, just like I said with subscribing, rating and reviewing, I would greatly appreciate. You can go to my Patreon page, which is Patreon, P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy, dot com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's pretty much goes to anything that I do as far as supporting my work, whether it's maintaining the website, upgrading some equipment, looking at some possible advertising, marketing stuff, all that goes to that. So I'm not looking to purchase a G5 or a brand new car. Trust me, this is all going to go 100% to the podcast because as you well know, people, or if you may not know if this is your first time, this is what I love to do, people. This is what I love to talk about. I've already put in 155 episodes, two and a half years in the bank, and I hope to do this for... 50 plus years and 5,000 more episodes to come because as you may or may not know, I love to talk about everything that happens on the diamond, on the ice, on the gridiron, on the golf course, the hardwood, racetrack, tennis course, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. I appreciate you all. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.